Well, good morning. Uh, again, welcome to King's Church. We are glad to have you here today. This morning, we're going to be continuing, in our, continuing on in our series over Mark. Uh, through this series, we've just been asking, who is Jesus? Um, today, we're in week seven now of 17 series, and we're taking our time again to ask that question of who Mark is presenting Jesus to be, because it's a really important question, right? Who Jesus is and how you respond to that has eternal consequences. But to answer the question of who Jesus is, we're not going to go to popular opinion. We don't go to culture, right? Jesus isn't who I say he is. Jesus isn't who you think he might be, who we want him to be. Who Jesus is can only be answered through Scripture. And so that's, what, that's why we're asking that question as we're going through Mark. Today, we're going to be covering some, some really famous stories. The feeding of the 5,000, and then when Jesus walks on water. And as Catherine said, I think a lot of us know these stories, but I don't want us to tune out. Because through them, Mark points back to the Old Testament a number of times to show in depth and in detail who this Jesus is. He's more than someone who can just feed you. He's more than someone who can just walk on water. There's a depth to who he is. And in the moment, the disciples really miss, miss this. It, it says in the passage that their hearts are hardened, and they don't understand who Jesus is. So I don't want us to leave here today not understanding who Mark is portraying Jesus to be. Because again, who Jesus is and how you respond have eternal consequences. And so today, as you're leaving, I want you to leave realizing that Jesus is the God of the Old Testament, who is now here and present in the flesh. Our big idea is that Jesus is the sovereign Lord of the Old Testament who cares for his people. He's not just another prophet. He's not a good teacher. He's not just one historical figure. He's not John the Baptist or Elijah back from the dead, but he truly is God in the flesh. So most of our time is going to be spent going through the feeding of the 5,000 and then the miracle of Jesus walking on the water, just seeing who is Jesus in those stories. And in the end, there's one more paragraph that summarizes some of Jesus' ministry in the region of Galilee. And so before we dive in, would you just go ahead and pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that um, as we sang today, we get to come and behold this wondrous mystery. God, a mystery that was hidden for ages and generations has now been revealed to your saints through your word. So I pray that we would just, uh, you would open our eyes to behold who you are through scripture. And would, would that picture of who you are, God, motivate us to worship you in spirit and in truth. So Lord, give me the words to say, would your spirit be moving and active today? Let's hear we pray. Amen. Alrighty, well, if you have your Bibles, if you would turn with me to Mark 6, we're going to be picking up where Heath left off last week. Uh, so today is Mark 6, verses 30 to the end in verse 56. And we'll start out, we'll just go ahead and read uh, the feeding of the 5,000. So in verse 30, Mark writes saying, The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away to the, in a boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, 
and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, that his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, Will you give them something to eat? And they said to him, Shall we go and buy two hundred denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them to all sit down in groups of fifties uh, and a hundred on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. And taking the five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven and he said a blessing. And he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. So quickly to reorient ourselves in, in the context of this passage. Last week, Heath told the story of how Jesus sent out the disciples on mission. He gave us this image of being in a football huddle with Jesus, where he teaches them and he equips them and he sends them out to go run this play, to go on mission. And now the disciples have returned, and Jesus is evaluating, hey, how did this go? And we followed this exact same pattern yesterday, where we were taught, we were equipped, we were sent out, and then we came back and we evaluated how it went. And based on what the disciples were saying in their excitement, it seemed that it went well. Their ministry was fruitful, so much so they had gained so much popularity that they couldn't even have time to eat. They couldn't find time to get alone. And so Jesus, he wants to call them away from the crowds, call them away from these peoples and these distractions so that he can minister to them. He's setting a good example for us that in order for us to do effective ministry for Jesus, we really need to be ministered to by Jesus first. Right? We can't continue to work and labor and do ministry just in our own strength We'll get burnt out. We need to be restored in our relationship with God before we can go try to serve him through our actions. So he wants to get his disciples away, so they get in a boat, and they're going off to this desolate place. However, the people see him, right? And they're so desperate to learn from Jesus and be around him that they run along the shore, and they end up beating them there. And Jesus, when they get there, he, he's not annoyed, right? He's not angry, we see his heart, where he's deeply moved, and it says that he has compassion on them, because they're like sheep without a shepherd. We see his heart here, and we know from other scripture that, that Jesus is our good shepherd, right? That he's the one who will leave the 99 to go find the one lost sheep. That's who our father is. I also like that it says later on when he has the people sit down, that they sit down on the green grass, it makes me think of Psalm 23, where God makes us lie down in green pastures, and he leads us beside still waters. I also want us to zero in on this phrase where it says, sheep without a shepherd. Because I think Mark is pointing back to a story from the Old Testament, really a prayer from the Old Testament, where Moses is asking the Lord to provide a leader so that his, his nation, the Israelites, don't just wander without a leader. It's in Numbers 27. Verses 16 and 17, Moses prays, saying, Let the Lord of God 
or let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be a sheep that have no shepherd. So I, again, I don't think this phrase, sheep without a shepherd, is used accidentally by Mark. I think he really is pointing back and saying, yes, God originally answered this prayer by sending Joshua to lead the people into the promised land. But now here we see the Israelites and, and people of God before Jesus, and he sees them as a sheep without a shepherd. And Mark is pointing out that ultimately Jesus is the fulfillment of this prayer of Moses, that he's the leader of the Israelites who will lead them out and bring them in. He's the one who leads us. He is our good shepherd. And as our good shepherd, he cares for his sheep. He wants to lead them and he teaches them late into the day until people start to get hungry. Right? And so the disciples see this big crowd. And, and if you have a big crowd of people who are all hungry, there could be, could be danger on the way. And so the, he, they go up to Jesus and they say, hey, we need to send these people away. And Jesus says, why don't you feed them? And then they respond and they kind of point out how absurd Jesus' statement is. They say, Jesus, do you want us to go spend 200 denarii worth of money to buy food for these people? And a denarii is, one denarii is what you would make in a, in a day's wage. So 200 days of working, or eight months out of a year, if you took all of that money that you earned and went to buy food, that's how much it would cost to feed these people. And we know this story, right? We go, yeah, it's a lot of people, but Jesus feeds them. But I want us to put ourselves in this situation. Let's pretend that Jesus calls us up and he says, hey, King's Church, you're going to be catering this event today. And if we average around 50 people a Sunday, that would mean that everyone here would have to bring enough food to feed 100 guys. That's guys, not just women, right? And so as, as Catherine and I have been married, she, she continually forgets that I eat a lot more than she does. And guys, right, we can't go to Subway and eat half a sandwich. We need the full thing. So... Let's pretend we were supposed to, or we, we'd choose Subway to cater this event. If we want to feed 5,000 guys, we would need a Subway sandwich that's a mile long. And if we could do Subway for $5 a foot long, we're looking at $25,000, right, just to, feed this, just to feed the men. And there's probably a couple thousand more women and children there. And so in that situation, I would be exactly like the disciples. I would be like... <laughs> I'll empty my savings, is that what you want, so that I can feed these people one meal. This situation, in my opinion, would look impossible, and to the disciples, they also see it as impossible. But God has a plan. So Jesus, he has them sit down in groups of 50s and 100s on this green grass, and then he asks, he goes out, he sends the disciples out to go see, what do we have right now? And they bring back the five loaves and the two fish. And Jesus takes the bread, he blesses it, and he breaks it. And then he gives it to the disciples so they can start dispersing it to the people. And they start handing it out, and they keep handing it out, and they keep handing it out. Until 5,000 plus people have eaten their fill. How cool is it that Jesus doesn't just give enough food so that we don't starve and we can make it to the next meal, but he satisfies his people with an abundance to the point that there are leftovers from this bread multiplication that Jesus does. I think it's also important and worthy to note that Jesus likes to use what was already there, right? He easily could have just made 
food appear out of nowhere into people's laps. But he had the disciples go out to see what was available to them. And someone gave up the food that they had in order to be used by Jesus. And then he used his disciples to disperse this food. He wanted to involve other people in his miracle. And while this miracle truly is incredible, there's even more to it than Jesus just feeding a lot of people once. Right? Because in the Old Testament, we see that God constantly fed people with bread from heaven. God in the Old Testament led his people by a pillar of cloud and of fire. And for 40 years, he fed a nation of hundreds of thousands of people every day with bread from, ha- bread from heaven. That is manna. Right? And so for, I, for I, people who have the eyes to see, Mark is pointing out and pointing to Jesus and saying, Hey, look, look back at the Old Testament. That God who is feeding his people in the desert Jesus is that same God who is now feeding his people bread from heaven in this desolate or desert place. Jesus is the God of these ancestors of Israel. As they had received bread from heaven, they now receive bread from heaven from Jesus. He's feeding his people and he's caring for them as the good shepherd. But Mark's not just pointing back to a story in the Old Testament in this feeding. He also points forward. The only other time in the Gospel of Mark where we see Jesus break bread is in the Lord's Supper. When he breaks it and he says, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so we see that Jesus is the bread of life. He is another bread that has come down from heaven there to satisfy the needs of people who are in a desperate situation. He came as the bread of life to be broken for all. And why did he have to do this? What was our desperate situation? Why were we in need? And what happened is that we have all sinned, right? The people who were there in attendance at this day of the feeding of the 5,000, everyone up to modern day today, we have all done wrong things. We've all sinned, and we are all worthy of God's judgment. And there's nothing to do. It's a lot easier to feed 5,000 people than to try to reconcile ourselves to God in our own strength. We are in an impossible situation, but God has a plan. And his plan was to send the bread of life from heaven to meet the needs of his people. Jesus came down as God in the flesh. And he lived a perfect life, and he never sinned, never did anything wrong. He was undeserving of God's judgment and wrath. However, willingly, he took our place on the cross where he bore our judgment and he died for our sins. But then the good news, right, is that three days later, God rose him again from the dead, proving that that his wrath had been satisfied, he was pleased with his son, and that sin and death had been defeated. This is the good news that we have as believers, that the bread of life has come down, it has been broken for us, and we can find life in him. This is who Jesus is, and we have an obligation to respond, right? You can either reject the gospel and for eternity spend it in separation from God, or we can joyfully receive it, repent of our sins, and then be covered by Christ's perfection and his righteousness, and we can stand justified before the Lord. That's the good news that we have. 
that because Jesus came as the bread of life to pay the price for our sins, we can now have a restored relationship with God and we can be lavishly loved on him or loved on by our good shepherd. And really just thinking upon the gospel, that, I want that to be our main takeaway from, from this first miracle. Would we come and rest to get away from distractions in life and work and our own efforts? Would we just come and be cared for by our good shepherd? He loves for you. His heart is for you. And also then, would we rejoice in this bread of life and feast at the table of the Lord's Supper? Last week, we partook of the Lord's Supper, and it's a time of remembrance and reflection, but it's also a celebration, right? Because now, because of what Jesus has done, we get to be in good favor before the Lord. We are no longer regarded as enemies, but we are sons and daughters who will be carried unto glory. And then another practical application from this passage is just to follow Jesus' example, to be moved to meet the needs of those people around us. We see him care for their physical needs, and then he's there ultimately to meet their spiritual needs. So as Christians, we can't be negligent about people in need around us. We can't just say, all people need is the gospel. I'm only going to say things. I'm never going to do anything. Right? Would we be diligent to have Christ-like compassion and mercy and be moved towards those people who are in worse situations than we are. Care for their physical needs. And as we're meeting their physical needs, then we, can, we have a basis and a, and a relationship that we can then share and point out that they have a spiritual need that can only be met in Jesus Christ. And we get to tell them about who this Jesus is. And so who is Jesus? Who have we learned he is through this miracle? We see that he is the good shepherd who cares for the physical needs of his sheep. And he's also the bread of life who meets our ultimate, ultimate spiritual need for salvation. That's who Jesus is. Well, we get to learn even more today. If you would pick up with me in verse 45 of Mark 6, we'll read about the next miracle. It says, Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat. And go before him to the other side of Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out at sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. So right after he feeds all these people, he gets the disciples in the boat and he dismisses the crowds. And then what does Jesus do? Before going to the disciples, before doing anything else, before seeking out more people to do ministry to, he goes and he prays with his Father. And I'll confess, this sounds exhausting to me. Oftentimes, for me, prayer feels like just one more thing I have to do, that I have to muster up energy for it. It's a discipline that I need to do, and I need to be diligent to do it. But for Jesus, this is where he got his energy 
right? Through his relationship with his father, that's how he was restored. Through prayer, he resisted temptation. Through prayer, he made sure that he was staying on mission for what God had him to do. I want that to be true for our lives. I don't want us to to just think that prayer is one more thing we have to do, but it is our lifeline, that we would be a church who prays, that we intercede for people. We come before him as just needy and broken people who need to be cared for by our good shepherd. I want us to just spend time away with the Lord, away from distractions again, and be restored and ministered to by the ministered to by the Lord so that we can go out and minister for him. Will we be more like Jesus in our prayer lives? So while Jesus is praying, the disciples are out battling the winds and the waves on the sea. And they must be exhausted. But I want us to think that they're only in this situation because they were obedient to Jesus. Right, so often I think people think that or people even preach that Christianity, if you believe in Jesus, he's going to make your life great. And while there is something great that we have our spiritual need met in Jesus Christ, life might get a lot more difficult because you believe in Jesus. Right? You might have awkward family conversations. You might be called to dangerous countries. For, for the people who are originally reading this letter, they were probably facing persecution. And so... Reading this story and seeing the disciples who are struggling and in a hard situation because they were obedient to Jesus, I think it gave them great hope. That they probably also felt exhausted and worn down and tired and wondering, where is Jesus? And I think they can find great comfort in what Jesus does next. Because we see that Jesus looks out on the sea and he sees the disciples in this situation. And then he goes to them. And how does he do it? He goes in a way that only God can do, by walking on the water. Right? It, it's not him walking on the bank and the disciples think it's a person just walking on the water. He's not walking on a sandbar and then hops in a boat. Jesus literally walks on the water of a stormy sea for mile after mile. And in my brain, I always think for some reason that the surface is flat that Jesus is walking on. If you've ever seen Stranger Things, like when Eleven does her radio thing and she's walking around and it's flat and there's kind of water on the ground, that's what I picture it as. But right, these are fishermen by trade who for eight hours have been rowing against the wind and the waves and Jesus is walking over that to them. And so I think he's rising and falling with the waves. I think his hair and clothes are probably wet from, from sea spray, but on he walks to his disciples. In the middle of the night. It says the fourth watch. That's 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. And so Jesus moves towards his disciples. And then we kind of get this weird phrase in verse 48. It says that Jesus meant to pass by the boat. Well, why? Right? Why, Why does Mark say Jesus meant to pass by? Did Jesus walk all that way, look in the boat, and say, that looks like a lot of hard work, no thanks? Or does he just not care about his disciples? Did he just want to play a funny joke on them and just beat them to wherever they were going? Or is there something more to this phrase? And first off, the idea of of passing by, Jesus wanted to, to really walk by to be seen by the disciples. 
But why did Mark use this phrase of pass by? I think, again, he's pointing back to the Old Testament to another story about Moses where we see the exact same language. And Moses is talking with God, and he says, Lord, show me your glory. And God says, you can't. Right? If, if Moses were to behold face-to-face the glory of God, he would die. He says, here's what I'll do. He takes Moses and he puts him in a cleft of a rock and he puts his hand over him and he passes by. And afterwards, he removes his hand and Moses walks out and he sees the back of the glory of God who had just passed by him. And I think Mark is pointing back to say, you know that famous story? Well, here is Jesus passing by his disciples, but they see him now and they can behold his face because he is God in the flesh. There's another um, passage in Job 9 which uses the exact same language and talks about Jesus or God really treading on waves. In Job 9 verses 8 through 11, this is what he writes. He's talking about the Lord. He says, the Lord who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea, who made the bear and Orion, the Pleiades and the chambers of the south, who does great things beyond searching out, And marvelous things beyond number. Behold, he passes by me, and I do not see him. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. There's one commentator, and he's comparing these two passages, the one in Job and the one in Mark. And he says, when Jesus passes by the disciples on the lake, he does something differently from the revelation of the God in the Old Testament. He intends to make the mysterious an enigmatic God of Job, visible and palpable, as it had not been and could not have been in former generations. So this marvelous God who has made the constellations, who who is seemingly far off physically back in the Old Testament, he is now with man. Right? Colossians talks about that the fullness of God dwelt bodily in Jesus Christ. So who is Jesus? Who is Mark pointing him out to be? He is God with us. The creator God, the sovereign Lord, he is now present walking and talking with the disciples. And as he passes by, unlike Job, they see him. But how do they respond? Right? The passage says that they become frightened and they're terrified. Once again, let's put ourselves in this situation. Imagine after dinner, it was a good dinner, some bread and some fish, you get in a boat, You get in a sailboat, and you start rowing for eight hours. So it's 3 to 6 a.m. in the morning, and you are still rowing, working against the waves and the wind. You're probably exhausted. You're probably getting hungry again. You're you're wondering where where land is. Are you going to get there anytime soon? You're sitting there. You're rowing, and all of a sudden you look out, and there is a man on the lake walking towards you. Right? You've, you've been sitting there straining at the oars. If I was there, I would think I would be hallucinating. Maybe I had fallen asleep and I was dreaming. Or I would just be just as terrified as the disciples. Because as you're fighting against the wind and the waves, over these waves comes a man walking on the sea. So they're scared. And what does Jesus do? But he calls out to comfort them. And with his words of comfort, he makes yet another massive claim at his divinity. Jesus says, take heart. It is I, do not be afraid. And what's really important is the it is I phrase 
is the Greek version of when God said, I am from the bush, from the burning bush to Moses. Jesus is saying, take heart, I am. He's making another clear statement that he is the God from the Old Testament, now here and present with his people. Again, he's saying, remember that time when God spoke to Moses from the burning bush? That's me. This is actually the, the reason that I capitalized the whole word of Lord in our big idea. The big idea is that Jesus is the sovereign Lord of the Old Testament who cares for his people. And the reason I did that is because in your Bibles, if you ever see Lord in all caps, it's, it's meaning that in that instance, the word Yahweh was used for God. And Yahweh means I am. It's, it's the name that God gave Moses when he was speaking to him from the burning bush. And so now Jesus is saying that name Yahweh applies to me as well. I am God. This is a massively bold claim, right? Ultimately, this is why the Pharisees hate him and crucify him, because he's claiming to be God. But the disciples don't understand in this moment. They're amazed, they're, they're awestruck that when he gets in the boat, the, the wind and the waves stop, but they still don't understand who he is. They failed to see that Jesus was their good shepherd and their bread of life who was there to, to care for his people earlier on. And here now, they fail to recognize that he's saying, I am. I'm that God who created the wind and the waves. I have all authority over them. And eventually, right, the disciples come to understand who Jesus is. But in this moment, they miss it. And it goes to show that the only way we can recognize who Jesus is and respond in faith is if God opens our eyes to the light of the glory of the gospel so that we can see it. And so today, I want you to think, are you like the disciples in this situation? Do you see Jesus as a good teacher, someone who did amazing miracles? Maybe you're even amazed at what he's done. But do you know him as your Lord and Savior? Because if you know him as your Lord and Savior, then you can have comfort that the great I am sees you in your distress, he has met your physical and spiritual needs, and he will carry you into glory. Again, the, the original readers of this letter were facing persecution and death. So I think they found great comfort from this passage, knowing that God saw them and he went to the disciples. They could withstand anything knowing that God sees and he cares for his people. And today we can also draw comfort from that. That you might be up late at night in the fourth watch from 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. just feeling guilt or anxiety or fear or doubt or whatever those things are, we can know that God sees us in those instances and that Jesus stands at the right hand of God constantly interceding and praying for his people. So who is Jesus from this passage? He is the great I am who is present on the earth to help us with our struggles. And finally, we just have one last paragraph. This is, uh, we see Jesus continuing to heal people throughout Galilee. So if you still have your Bibles open, we're in verse 53. It says that when they had crossed over, they came to, came to, a, wow, came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces 
and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Again, this is a little summary of of some of Jesus' ministry in the region of Galilee, where he is continuing to go out, teach people, and heal them. I think it's incredible that if someone just came and literally touched his shirt, they were healed. What power God has. And while his power and abilities are limitless, I don't want us to mistake amazement at what Jesus can do with who Jesus is and having saving faith in him. Think about how many thousands of people Jesus just fed, and then how many thousands more throughout his ministry he teaches and he heals and all the miracles he performs. And yet, on the night that he was betrayed, and when he went to the cross, he did it alone. That people had abandoned him, right? And even after his resurrection, he appears to his apostles, and then he appears to about 500 more people. So out of the thousands of people, how many of those people came to Jesus just because of what he could do for them? As opposed to coming to know Jesus, their good shepherd, right? The bread of life, the great I am, God with us. And let's think about that ourselves. Do I come to Jesus just because I like what he teaches or he makes me feel good or or I can come to him and, and lay requests or do I come to know him for who he is? I hope that we... We pursue Jesus so that we can be restored in a relationship with him and come to know him better as he is revealed through scripture. Uh, at this point, I'll go ahead and ask the band to come up. We're going to be concluding. Kind of have application points that I, I hope we would just remember and dwell upon throughout this week. First off, remember that Jesus is your good shepherd. His heart is for you. He is the leader of Israel who Moses prayed for, and he is now there and present to care for his flock. So take time away from work, away from ministry, to commune with God and be ministered to him through prayer. Jesus is also the bread of life, right? He fed the Israelites manna in the wilderness. He fed the crowds loaves and fish in this desolate place. And one day in eternity, we have another great feast that we get to look forward to. We will be welcomed in as the bride of Christ and feast with him because of his sacrifice as the bread of life. And finally, Jesus is the great I am. He truly is God here in the flesh. He has authority over the the elements of nature and over, over all things. And he sees us in our distress. So I hope seeing who Jesus is and what we can learn about him motivates us to move into worship. So I'm going to pray for us, and then let's respond in worship of celebrating who Jesus is. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that you see us. God, that in our distress, God, when when we mess up and we feel guilty, you still see us. God, we thank you that you are the, the bread of life who came down and was broken for all. Lord, I thank you that we have this opportunity to be in a restored relationship with God again. And because of that, God, then we get to be cared for by our good shepherd. We are welcomed into God's family as his sons and daughters. God, we long for the day to, for you to come back so that we can enjoy this, this wedding feast with you in glory. We love you, Lord. Would we take time to be ministered by, by the word and through prayer. Let's hear your prayer. Amen.